Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. David Nicosa, a business owner in Chicago, had no idea who he was slapping. The 55-year-old man was outside the Cook County Courthouse when he became angry with a 79-year-old African-American woman. After arguing with her, Nicosa, who was white, slapped the woman and spat on her and called her Rosa Parks. That was a bad move for Nicosa. The woman happened to be Judge Arnett Hubbard, the first female president of the National Bar Association. Judge Hubbard is a community icon and has long been a voice on civil rights. Nicosa was arrested by sheriff's deputies and charged with four counts of aggravated battery and a hate crime. The Chicago Tribune quoted a local leader who said, People of good common sense and decency, people of good hearts should be outraged by this. After all, nobody should go around slapping and spitting on a community icon. That's bad enough when it's a human judge. But what about someone slapping and spitting on the judge of the whole earth? In the Gospels, we see that the entire human race conspired to slap and spit on someone whose true dignity was also hidden. It was an outrage. And yet, the eternal Son of God didn't arrest us. Instead, he set us free. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. Look at verse 16 with me. So he then handed them over to be So he then handed him over to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, carrying his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. There have been many famous deaths in world history. We might think of John F. Kennedy or Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but we do not refer to the assassination, the guillotining, or the poisonings. Such references would be incomprehensible. But the use of the term the crucifixion for the execution of Jesus shows that it still retains a privileged status. When we speak of the crucifixion, even in this secular age, most people will know what is meant. There is something strange about the man identified as the Son of God that continues to command special attention. This death, this execution, above and beyond all others, continues to have universal reverberations. Of no other death in human history can this be said. The cross of Jesus stands alone in this regard. Now, there were many thousands of crucifixions during Roman times, but only the crucifixion of Jesus is remembered and talked about 2,000 years later. Now, crucifixion was an exceptionally brutal way to die. If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, it will give you a pretty good idea. Its viciousness should still shock us, even in this desensitized age. A Franciscan University in Ohio recently posted a series of ads on Facebook to promote some of its online theology programs. But Facebook rejected one of them because it included a representation of the crucifix. 
The monitors of Facebook said the reason for the rejection was they found the depiction of the cross shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. The Franciscan University of Steuben responded with a blog post that no doubt surprised Facebook as they agreed with Facebook's assessment. The Franciscan University posted, Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed as God. It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged within an inch of his life, knelt to a cross naked, and left to die. All the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon his humanity. Facebook had no response. Verse 16 simply says they handed him over to be crucified. John's readers needed no more description of Jesus' mode of execution than the short phrase, they crucified him. The details of that method, of that type of execution, was indelibly etched upon their minds. The Apostles' Creed says it without embellishment. He was crucified dead and buried these are there are three events that are described in john 19 and they are decisive events that we must understand not only from a historical point of view but also from a doctrinal point of view what happened is important and why it happened is also important if you hope to go to heaven customarily the man to be crucified was led to the site of his execution by the longest route possible so everyone could see that crime does not pay. And as Christ tread the Via Della Rosa, he began that mile-long walk carrying his cross. And since the times of the early church fathers interpreted the scenes Christ bearing his cross as an illusion of Isaac, who, like Christ, carried on his back the wood that would have been used in his sacrifice. Now, in keeping with Old Testament law and Roman practice, executions always took place outside of the city. Therefore, Jesus went out of Jerusalem to the place of execution. This also fulfilled Old Testament typology. According to the Mosaic law, the sin offerings were to be taken outside of the camp. Exodus 29:14 reads, but the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Noting the theological significance of Jesus, the final offering being executed outside of the city, the author of Hebrews wrote, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, also suffered outside the gate. Today we think of the cross as a symbol of glory and victory. But in Pilate's day, the cross stood for the basest kind of rejection, shame, and suffering. It was Jesus who made the difference and glorified it. Now, modern methods of carrying out capital punishment differ from ancient methods in two significant ways. First, modern executions are done in private, keeping the gallery of witnesses as small as possible. 
However, ancient executions were public spectacles with almost a carnival-like atmosphere. Secondly, modern executions are designed to bring about death as swiftly and painlessly as possible. While ancient methods were painstakingly crafted to extend the process of dying as long as possible while maximizing the agony. And so crucifixion combined four qualities the Romans prized most in an execution. Unrelenting agony, protracted death, public spectacle, and utter humiliation. It says he was taken to a place called the skull because in that day it is believed the hill looked like a human skull. In Latin, Golgotha or Calvary or the place of the skull is what that means. So we could really change our name to Skull Chapel and still be theologically sound. Plus it might attract bikers and people clad in leather and such. Anyhow, here we have Jesus carrying his cross, but what does that mean to us in January 2023? You're not going to like it. This is Luke 14:27 with Jesus speaking. He says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down to calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will ridicule him by saying, this man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. It's just pretty hard to spiritualize that, isn't it? Jesus is telling us that if we want to be his disciples, we had better count the cost because it is a long, treacherous, arduous path to that celestial city. He's asking us to give up everything. But you know what? That's a small thing compared to what awaits us after this life. Paul would later say it like this. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of everything, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. What Paul is saying is that compared to Christ, the very best the world could ever offer us is just a big, stinking pile of trash. What good is it, Jesus said, that if a man gains the entire world but loses his very own soul? But today, we have fixed up Christianity so that we go around telling people how easy it is. We gather people together and say, no, you've got it all wrong. You have your best life now. Jesus is not going to lay any burdens on you. He's only going to take them off. He's not going to let you get into any kind of trouble. He's always going to get you out of trouble. Serving the Lord is the easiest, smoothest, slickest thing 
in all the world. You can have a wonderful time down here and just be happy, happy, happy all of the time. And then you get to go to heaven. This kind of teaching is completely foreign to the scripture. But many people believe in that contorted position of what it means to be a Christian. But I'm going to tell you the unvarnished truth this morning. If you follow Jesus, you will have his enemies. If you follow Jesus, you will have his troubles. If you follow Jesus, you will have his rejection. If you follow Jesus, they will think about you the same way that they thought about him. And what they thought about him can be seen on a hill outside of Jerusalem. They took him out and nailed him on a cross. But did he not plainly tell us that would be our lot if we chose to follow him? This is Luke 9:23, where Jesus said, If anyone wants to come up after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Why? He says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. I read about a man who dreamt he was carrying a heavy cross on his shoulder. He was so exhausted and just wished that the burden of the cross would be lighter. In his dream, he saw a woodsman with an axe, so he asked that a good part of his cross would be chopped off. After that, the man happily resumed his journey, thankful that his cross now was so much lighter. However, later on in his journey, he came to a chasm between two mountains. He wanted to continue, but found that he could not bridge that gap. If only his cross had been longer, he could have used it as a bridge across it. But the cross was short by just the length that had been chopped off. When the man awoke, he was glad that it was only a dream. He now realized that only those willing to carry a heavy cross are able to scale that next mountain. Let me tell you, those of us who are constantly in search of a lighter cross will never go far in claiming territory for Christ. At some point, we will conclude that the price of obedience is just too high and the obstacles are just too formidable. This truth runs through all the teachings of Christ. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Unfortunately, some people have made the cross just a very poetic thing. Someone came to an old man of God and asked him, You teach the deeper life, the life lost in God. Tell me, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? The old man scratched his head a little and gathered his thoughts and said, Well, the crucified man only faces one direction. He's not facing all around, but just one direction. The second thing about a crucified man is he has no plans of his own. Somebody else has made all the plans for him. Verse 18, please. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. John's statement does more than reveal that he was an eyewitness to this crucifixion. It also records the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53:12 predicted that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. 
And so Jesus was also, even though he was innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever. I think it's intriguing that Jesus was born among animals and died among thieves. But the whole idea of a Savior who is ordinary in looks and strength and then who allows himself to be mocked and tortured to death doesn't make any sense, really. It's not rational. And an even more graphic portrayal of the crucifixion comes from Psalm 22. Remarkably, David, who had no knowledge of crucifixion, penned a vivid description of Christ's crucifixion centuries before it happened. And verses 6 through 8 of that chapter reflect the derision hurled at Jesus as he hung there on the cross, where we read, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. The parallel with Matthew 27, 39 is striking. It says, And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. One author writes, The scene with the beatings and the sharp spikes and the slow torment of suffocation has been recounted so often that we who shrink from a new story on the death of a racehorse or a baby seal flinched not at its retelling. Once again, unlike the quick, sterile executions we know today, this one stretched out for hours in front of a jeering crowd. The Dutch artist Rembrandt once created a powerful painting of the crucifixion. It's powerful because of its immense detail. When you look at the picture, your eyes are immediately drawn to the cross with Christ hanging there. Then your attention becomes focused on the crowd gathered at the foot of the cross, and you can see in their face the attitude and the actions of the people who are there. But lastly, if you look closely, you can see at the very edge of the picture there is someone standing there in the shadows. It was Rembrandt himself. Rembrandt was declaring that he realized he helped to crucify Jesus. His fingerprints, too, were on the cross. As one ancient hymn declared, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery." But while the cross is the supreme expression of God's redeeming love, it was also at the same time the ultimate manifestations of man's depravity, as it was the most egregious sin against divine light, love, and grace. The Bible says Jesus endured such hostility by sinners against himself. There's an interesting insight into this from archaeology. 
It's found in some graffiti on the walls in a house in Rome, written by someone making fun of a Christian that he knew. The idea that someone would follow a hero who was crucified was foolishness to him. So he drew a figure of Jesus with a donkey's head on the cross. In front of it, a young man was worshiping. Then he wrote a caption underneath it, Alexa Menace worships his God. It's an interesting look into the attitude of the Roman world toward the way of the cross. It was utter and complete foolishness to them. Nothing has changed. Richard Dawkins is the author of The God Delusion. He is formerly professor of public understanding of science at Oxford University. He once debated John Lennox, who is a professor of mathematics at Oxford. They debated the existence of God. At one point, Dawkins says of Lennox, he believes that the creator of the universe, the God who devised the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the physical constraints and the genius of this mathematics and physical science, that this so-called God cannot think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive. That, says Dawkins, is profoundly unscientific. Not only is it unscientific, he says, but it doesn't do justice to the grandeur of the universe. Why would God even bother entering into our broken world? Dawkins chided to Lennox and, by extension, all Christians for believing in that kind of God. In a way, Dawkins is right. Think about it. God's only and eternal son on a Roman cross, despised and rejected by human beings on this tiny planet. It does seem unbelievable that a God can love us that much. But it's also crucial at this point to remember that the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus Christ is God. The reason I bring that up is God did not then inflict pain on someone else but rather on the cross, absorb the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself. Therefore, the God of the Bible is not like the primitive deities who demanded our blood for the wrath to be appeased. Rather, this is a God who becomes human and offers his own blood in order to honor the moral justice and also the merciful love so that someday he can destroy all evil without at the same time destroying all of us. In the cross of Christ, John Stott writes that substitution is the heart of the Christian message. He says, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, and God puts himself where we deserve to be. In Graham Kendrick's words, hands that flung stars into space to cruel nail surrendered. Listen, today we live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet we know that God still loved that city and wanted to spare it. Do you remember the story? Abraham says, Oh Lord, 
Wouldn't it be possible that the righteousness of the few might transfer to save the many? Is it possible that in spite of our bad record, you would love a righteous group of people in a city so much that for their sake, you would forgive everyone else? That way, you could be both a righteous God, honoring the righteous, but at the same time, saving the undeserving. Isn't that possible? Over and over and over again, he says, couldn't the righteousness of these people over here save those unrighteous people over there? Couldn't it be imputed somehow to them? Couldn't there be some way in which it covers it? And over and over again, God says, yeah. Now, when God says, yes, Abraham, of course, is astounded. And he says, okay, let me get this straight. You forgive the entire city for the sake of 50 righteous people. God says, yeah. How about 40? Yes, says God. How about 30? Yes. How about 20? Yeah. How about 10? Absolutely. But then, one of the most astounding places in the whole Bible to me, and one of the most shocking, unexpected endings to a story in the whole Bible, Abraham turns on his heels and goes home. Are you kidding me? He has God on the ropes, and he just went home. Now, what are we expecting him to do? Why is the last question we expect Abraham to come up with which he never asked. We expect Abraham at the very end to say, Oh Lord, just let me speak once more. Will you save the whole city for the sake of just one righteous person? Just one. Do you love righteousness so much that the righteousness of the one could be imputed to the whole and undeserving people and thus let them be saved? And we would expect the Lord to say, Yes, Abraham. I will save that city for the sake of one righteous person. But if there is a God of justice and righteousness, what hope is there for you and me? Because who can stand before him on our own merits? See, Abraham is trying to say if God is a righteous God, what hope is there for us flawed human beings? But then he found a path through. If we could find just one absolutely, truly righteous person, would not God, who loves righteousness for the sake of the love of that one righteous person, save the many for the righteousness of that one? Well, many centuries later, someone came along who could walk that path. Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, the undeserving city. He acted as a priest, really, did he not? He stood in front of God on behalf of the people, and he made intercession for them, but he didn't pull it off. But get this. Abraham prayed for people who might have killed him. That's really big of him. You see, the Canaanites were always attacking him, and yet he prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah. He prayed for people who might have killed him, but when Jesus Christ came as our ultimate high priest and went to the cross, he was at that time praying for people who were killing him. Remember what he said? Father, forgive them as they killed him, for they fully don't realize what they are doing. 
Abraham risked his life by going before God in order to save the people, but Jesus Christ gave his life. Abraham kept saying, I'm representing these people, God, but don't be mad at me if I ask another question. But Jesus Christ represented us and took the cosmic wrath of divine justice into his own heart. What does that mean? It means that he paid the penalty for our sins. That one act of absolutely pure, perfect love was perfect righteousness. Now, finally, let's ask the question, O Lord, would you save us undeserving people for the sake of that one righteous man? God's answer is yes, if it is my son, and it is. As we finish this morning, in Planet and Rebellion, George Valderman wrote, it was May 21st, 1946, the place, Los Alamos. A young daring scientist was carrying out a necessary experiment in preparation for the atomic test to be conducted in the waters of the South Pacific. He successfully performed such an experiment many times before. In his effort to determine the amount of U-235 necessary for a chain reaction, scientists call it the critical mass, he would push two hemispheres of uranium together. And just as the mass became critical, he would push them apart with a screwdriver, thus instantly stopping the chain reaction. But that day, just as the material became critical, the screwdriver slipped. The hemispheres of uranium became too close together. Instantly, the room was filled with a dazzling bluish haze. Now, young Lewis Slowton, instead of ducking in there by possibly saving himself, tore the two hemispheres apart with his bare hands and therefore interrupted the chain reaction. By this instant, self-forgetting, daring act, he saved the lives of the seven other people in that room. But, but as he waited for the car that was to take them to the hospital, he said quietly to his companion, Al Graves, he said, you'll come through this all right, but I haven't the faintest chance myself. It was only too true. Nine days later, he died in agony. He had saved the lives of seven others, but he could not save his own life. What does that mean for us as we leave here this morning? For thousands of years, sin had built up in intensity until it became a critical mass at Calvary. And on the rugged cross, Christ threw his own body across the fury of sin's chain reaction and broke its destructive power over your soul and over mine. I hope we all freshly appreciate that sacrifice. And if you haven't, I pray today is the day you surrender your life to Christ. Let us pray. Father, there is truly no one like you. There is no religion like Christianity where God becomes man and then dies for his people. And, Father, it is so easy to hear it so often and read it so often that it loses its punch. I pray today, Lord, that you would make it so real to every one of us, no matter where we are in our walk with you, that it would once again transform our lives and make us into the people you want us to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen.